As Andy said, we'll be in Ephesians 4 as we continue our series in Ephesians. We've been flip-flopping the last few weeks where first we'll look at the first half of the book at what we call indicatives, these truths, the foundations that we're looking at, and then we flip to the back half of the book, the imperatives, the commandments based on those truths. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. In Ephesians chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 4. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. If not, the words will be up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's take a minute to pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have um, not just commands in Scripture, but that we have truths that they are based on, truths that encourage us and push us forward to carry out those commands. We pray that that would be true this morning, that as we look at your text, as we look at what you call us to, that the truths and the promises you give us would be our encouragement to live those out. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So a little earlier than this time last year, Allison and I were still preparing for our daughter, McKinley, to be born, kind of putting the finishing touches on the nursery, getting the paint up, putting all the decorations on the wall, all the fun stuff. But really, the, the best thing about that time for us that we enjoyed the most was picking out her crib. For whatever reason, the crib made it feel real to us. It made it feel like we were actually going to have a baby. So we were really excited because it kind of just tied the room together. And so we went to Target to pick one out. And as we're looking through all the different models and, and makes and all that, we found one that just looked perfect, right? Uh, I mean, it, it was a great price. The color matched the room. And as we looked at the features on the box, everything looked great. It's an infant crib that converts into a toddler bed that converts into a full bed. You'll have it for years. It's made out of great materials, great reviews, trusted brand. Everything was right. And so we said, all right, let's get it. So we bought it, and then we brought it home, and that's what starts the assembly process. And so I open up the box, and I get all the parts out on the floor, and I set the box over to the side with a pretty picture of what the crib is supposed to look like so that I know what I'm building toward. But then I look down at all these parts in front of me, the rails that kind of look the same but kind of different, scattered brackets, nuts and bolts, and then the part that I hate most about any assemble-yourself furniture, the dreaded cheap Allen wrench. 
that inevitably strips within the first three turns. And I look at all this and I just go, this is not that. And I don't see how this could ever become that. I had no idea where to even start with this. With all these scattered parts in front of me, I had no idea what to do. It was in such disarray and such confusion, I would have never gotten it together if it were up to just me. And luckily it wasn't. It came with an instruction manual. So I reached for the instruction manual to guide me toward the glorified, perfect crib on the box. The instruction manual that told me how to do the work to get to the finished product. And that's exactly what we have here in Ephesians this morning. This is what Paul is giving us, an instruction manual. See, last week, gave a, uh, last week Andrew gave us this 30,000-foot view of the church, who we are, what our foundation is, what we will assuredly be one day. He gave us the pretty picture on the box. He gave us the advertisement, the foundation, the finished product where everything is put together and perfect. But there's work to be done to get there, and we need help doing that. We need an instruction manual, and so Paul gives us that. Last week we saw the indicatives, and now Paul gives us the imperative. This is what you will be, and here is how you're going to get there. And I want to kind of connect those to uh, just before we get to the, to the main points, just to see what that foundation is, to kind of remind us of what Andrew pointed to. That's where Paul starts in this passage. He begins in the passage by reminding us of the great gifts that God has given us that unify us as a body. We're unified through the shared gift of the gospel and the gift of grace that God has given us to believe in that gospel. Andrew brought this out last week. We are a people gathered up from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people gathered together despite our ethnic, generational, socioeconomic, or political differences. He said it best last week when he said, you don't just have a new passport, you have a new birth certificate. Paul draws out this point again here to emphasize and remind us that we are unified in this gift of the gospel that God has given us to bring us all into his family. We're gathered together under the lordship, the fatherhood, the authority of God, of our great God into one body who empowers us by his spirit. And we are unified by what that gospel calls us to. See, we are unified by our calling to the gospel and unified by what it calls us to, to go out and spread the gospel ourselves We actually have a task. The great gift of God here in that is that he invites us into his work. He uses us to build up his church. See, no matter who you are or where you're at, if you are a believer in Christ, God has united you with all other believers in a calling to build the church to facilitate the expansion of God's kingdom, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. God has unified us as a body by our calling through faith to the one true gospel, which cuts across every distinction. And then he has pointed us to the promise of our future hope and glory, and he has unified us around a goal by bringing that reality that future reality to fruition through us. 
And so you might wonder, how do we factor into bringing this reality about? How are we going to get the church to that pretty picture on the box from all the scattered parts in front of us? God has a process to get us there. He gives us gifts. So I want to start by looking at word-centered gifts that equip us. Word-centered gifts that equip. Paul says in verses 11 and 12, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. While we could delve into all of those, that's not what we have in view this morning. Instead, I want you to see two truths from this text. The church is structured, and the church is structured to equip. So first, the church is structured. The apostles and prophets are those upon whom the church is founded. Andrew talked about this last week. The evangelists went out to set up the churches after the apostles and prophets hand down that truth. And then the pastors and teachers lead within those churches. See, Paul is providing a structured list here. But this shouldn't surprise us if we look at the rest of the New Testament either. We're going to go through a few passages here. Paul gives an even more structured list in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And there he says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Acts 14.23, it says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then in Titus 1.5, Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete. This is the reason. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you before going on to give these specific requirements that the elders must meet. There's a structure here. There's a reason behind it, and hopefully you're getting the point by now. There is this structure. We all have gifts, but those gifts are not scattered and carelessly implemented within the church. There's a kind of hierarchy even where God appoints prophets and apostles to authoritatively hand down the true apostolic faith. And then pastors and teachers lead members into and based on that faith. And members serve one another and the unchurched, being equipped in faith by the pastors and teachers. There's a structure, but it's also important to see that this structure is not haphazard or meaningless. There's a reason. The church is structured to equip. When Paul lists out these structures and says, first apostles, second prophets, third, and so on, he's not giving like an NCAA top 25 power rankings of who's best in the church or who's better or who we should look at most. That's not his point. He's drawing our attention to the structure, which is important because of what it does for us. He says we're given these offices to equip saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You want this structure because you don't want just anyone equipping you. Imagine that you just got hired as a mechanic, for example, and you have no experience in this job, so you're going in blind. You're going to need a lot of training in order to do this job well. And the shop that you work at brings in a high school senior Zaxby's cashier to train you. Now, this guy is good, right? He's Zaxby's star employee, employee of the month, every month, Great guy, does his job well. 
but how well do you think he's going to train you on being a mechanic, on the ins and outs of the combustion engine or CPUs in a car? Probably not too well. And that's, what, that's the reason behind the defined structure to the church. See, you don't want just anyone in this pulpit teaching. And you wouldn't want just anyone leading you in your discipleship groups or your community groups. That's why we go through a formal process of testing our leaders to ensure that they will be able to faithfully, adequately, and properly equip us for the work of ministry. Pastors and teachers are tested and approved as those obedient to and reliably teaching the apostolic faith handed down to us. They are approved as ones who can help lead us and grow us and equip us spiritually for the work at hand. Their job is to use their gifts of shepherding and teaching to help equip you through discipleship to grow into your own gifts so that you can then go out and participate in the work of building up the body yourself. Now, I want to talk about what it means for you to be equipped exactly. You may be wondering, well, what are, what are you equipping us with? What does that actually look like? What is that process? Well, Paul connects us to the answer at the end of our passage in verses 13 and 14. He says, we are equipped to build up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Simply put, you're equipped with maturity in faith. You're equipped with maturity and faith. You're equipped with a deeper understanding of what it means to believe in one Lord. You're equipped to realize that it means that there is one God above all else in your life. Over all the other gods of success and money and politics and acceptance, whatever threatens to rule your life, as you're equipped with this reality, with this knowledge, you will begin to not only know it, but you will begin to believe it in your heart. And you'll begin to live it out. You'll begin to choose God over everything else. You're equipped with a stronger foundation in the one true faith. You're trained up in the truth of the scriptures to realize that faith and doctrine aren't just whatever you want it to be. Or whatever you think is right. There's a sound, objectively real faith that is true and unchanging. One that transcends even humanity's greatest and most profound wisdom. And as you're equipped in this faith, you conform more and more to the reality of it as you are molded into the image of Christ, becoming more and more like him each day. And you're equipped by your baptism that connects you to the church as a member of the visible covenant community. It serves as a reminder of the promises that that covenant extends to you through faith. And as an assurance of your standing before God as his covenant child. And as you continue to grow in that area as well, it's an encouragement for you to live out the truths that that sign represents. The truths of the life that that sign represents. One marked by death to sin and union with Christ and new life. You're equipped by being led into a deeper, stronger, and more mature faith. And this is essential for where we're at now. 
we are now seeing more easily and more commonly plenty of professed Christians who strive to defend abortion and who affirm LGBTQ lifestyles as biblical and who look at Scripture and claim it is unreliable or untrustworthy in many circumstances in life. And many of them do so very charismatically and very convincingly with arguments that are hard to go up against. It's only with the foundation of a rooted, grounded, mature faith taught by pastors and teachers that we will be able to stand up to these challenges. And more than that, when you are continually equipped in this area, in this way, you will be able to stand firm against even the most convincing false doctrines and philosophies, human cunning and deceit. You won't be blown about. You won't be tossed as a wave. You will stand firm for the word of the Lord. Being equipped by the church is vital for the Christian because it helps us accomplish our goal of building up the church. As it matures our faith to stand up to the challenges we will face, but it also equips us with a faith mature enough to go out and do ministry ourselves. So I want us to look at work-centered gifts that minister. That's where Paul goes next. He looks at the word gifts that equip us so that we can then work and minister to others. In his commentary on this text, R.C. Sproul points out the fact that you're equipped by pastors and teachers, which is their gifting, to use your gifts to go out yourselves and do the work of ministry. And he sums that up with this quote. He says, leaders are called to train people, to give them the equipment, tools, knowledge, and skills necessary for the works of service, or what Paul calls here the works of ministry. It's kind of interesting when you look at it that way. The pastor's job at that point is kind of to make himself irrelevant. His point is to train you up so that you can go out and do ministry. So that it doesn't all fall on one person, but so that we have an entire room and body of believers that can go out and minister to one another as well. Paul emphasizes in that the diversity of gifts that are meant to work together in concert for the work of the ministry. Essentially, he's telling us at this, part, at this point, you're the same, but you're different as well. You're the same in your foundation and your calling, but you're different in the way that you will personally contribute to the success of that calling. And so here I want to give you a point of application and a point of exhortation. First, the point of application, and it's very simple. If we look at what Paul is saying here, he has one message. Use your gifts You're given gifts, so use them. You get to participate in the life-giving work of ministry every day by your your gifts that he's given you. So take joy in that. Find joy in using those. Now, what does that actually look like? Well, Paul talks about this more in Romans 12, verses 6 and 8, where he says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Essentially, he's saying, identify your gifts and use them. Take joy in it. 
See, putting a man on the moon was the ultimate mission for NASA in the 60s. We all know that. That's something that we look back in our history. That's the big thing. We put a man on the moon. It's a big deal. But it wasn't an easy job, obviously. It was all hands on deck. They worked tirelessly day in and day out to make this happen. But the interesting thing is that if you walked into NASA at that point, and you asked anybody who worked there, whether they were an engineer, an army official, a janitor sweeping the floors, or a chef making their meals, no matter who you asked, if you said, what do you do here? They would have one response. I put people on the moon. I put people on the moon. Of all the hundreds or thousands of employees, even every seemingly minute or irrelevant position, they had a hand in accomplishing their goal. Every single person knew their mission, and they knew they were an important part of it in some way. They figured out how they could best contribute, and they utilized that to help accomplish the goal. Likewise, that's what we do in the church. You identify your gifting. We know the goal to build up the church, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't all do it the same way. We have to figure out, what do I do best? How can I contribute best to that? And so the natural question that you might lead to from there is, well, how do I do that? How do I know what my gifts are? How do I know how I can contribute? And plenty more could be said here. Um, we talk about this a lot. I think Andrew's preached a sermon on this before. Many summers will have a class talking about spiritual gifts. That's something you can look into. But I at least want to give you a few questions to consider this morning to start that conversation. And they're fairly simple. Here's a few to think about. What are you passionate about? Where do your passions lie? What do you care about? What naturally excites you when you have the opportunity to do it? And what are you good at? What kind of skills do you already have? Are you good at planning, for example? You might have an administrative gifting. Are you naturally generous? You might have the gift of giving. And also along those lines, what do others say you're good at? What do you notice other people saying, you know, you're always encouraging to me, and I really appreciate that. You're really good at this, and I enjoy seeing you do that. What are those things? And, and lastly, what areas in your life is the Lord blessing? And what I mean by that is, where are you seeing results and fruit in the areas where you serve and utilize the things you're good at? God's gifting will normally align with what you're already skilled at or enjoy. He gives you gifts to enjoy so that you will find joy in using them. Understand that the list we've read uh, this morning of the different gifts are a great starting place to go, okay, am I generous? Do I have that gift? Do I have the gift of teaching? What, what might I have? But they're not exhaustive. There are more gifts than, this, than just those that are listed. So meditate on these things. Talk to those who know you well and ask the Lord for guidance. Then as you begin to learn your gifts, use them for the church. Now, with that in mind, let me, let me try to bring Paul's passage home to us in light of that. It might read something like this. Having different gifts, use them. If bringing truth to bear in people's lives, do so lovingly for those who need guidance. If service, do so by joining the greeting team or helping to set up for your community group. If teaching, get involved with children's or youth Sunday school. If encouragement, go out of your way to speak encouragement into the lives of people who are struggling within the church. If generosity, if giving, then offer your resources like time, money, or even equipment to those who need it. 
We could keep going, but the point is to find where God has given you gifts and to use them to build up the body so that we might, meet, so that we might become mature in the faith. Now, one word of warning before we move on to the exhortation because this is actually a common thing, even, even if you may not have heard it before, this shouldn't become a reason not to serve in an area. Something that, that I heard a lot um, in, in my old churches, people would say, you know, you want me to go out and share my faith? Well, you know, I would, but evangelism's not really my gifting. That's not where I'm gifted at. Or you want me to help with youth on Wednesday nights? That's great, thanks for asking, but youth ministry isn't really my gifting. I, I'm gifted in other areas. See, understanding your gifts isn't meant to be a way to get out of other areas. It's not a ministry cop-out tool. Understanding your gifts is meant to help you get plugged into the areas in which you can help best, in which you can build up the body most. That's the point of learning those. Now, on to the exhortation then, and it's very simple. Don't despise others' gifts. Don't despise others' gifts. Uh, a story I heard once at Tim Keller's first church, the building was located right next to a, a very low-income trailer park. And in just the first few weeks of his ministry, three different people came to talk to him about those trailer parks. And the first person said, you see those trailers out there? None of those people come to our church. They're right next to us and none of them come. Do you know why we're not reaching those people? Because we don't have a heart for evangelism. Those people don't know Christ, and they don't go to church anywhere. We ought to be out there sharing our faith with them, but our church doesn't do that. And a few days later, another person came up, and he said, Pastor Keller, you see those trailers out there? He said, yeah. You know what the problem with the church is? The problem is that those are poor people, and we're not engaged in meeting their needs. Our church doesn't do a good job caring for the poor. We don't know how to deal with their economic problems. And again, later, another person came up and he said, you see those trailers? And Keller said, yeah, I'm familiar with them. You know the problem with our church? Our church is filled with people with good intentions who want to reach out and love our neighbor. But nobody knows how to organize something and execute it. No one knows how to plan and get things done. Our people don't know how to get things done in the church. Now, the funny thing is, all of those people were right. Every single person had a good point. They all had gifts that enabled them to see what was wrong. It's just that other people had different gifts, and so a different focus. They didn't see the same things, but all of them had a good point. What I want us to see in that is our response shouldn't be when we see a need to shake our heads and go, oh my gosh, if more people just evangelized like I did, all our problems would be solved. Or if more people were just generous like I was, oh my gosh, we wouldn't have any issues. No, we should be looking at others' gifts as a way to enrich the church and say, man, you know, I'm great at evangelism, but I don't have any resources to give. I need somebody who can give more than I can. Or, you know, I'm, I'm really ramped up to serve, but I, I don't even know where to start. I don't know how to get a ministry plan together or how to start something in the local community. I need somebody that can help administrate that stuff and plan it out for me. We should be looking at others' gifts as ways to complement and fulfill our mission rather than a way to despise them. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, a body is made up of many members, not just one. The, the hand can't say to the foot, oh, we don't need you. The, the eye can't say to the ear, you're useless. The foot can't say, I don't belong here because nobody needs me. 
we all have an important part to play. We all have the goal of building up the church by strengthening the current body from within, as well as building onto the body from without. Our desire should be to accomplish that in whatever we can, in whatever way we can, using every gift we have available to us throughout God's people. And we can be encouraged in the work that we're doing, knowing that our gifts will accomplish the task given to us when we look at the gospel. That's where we'll end this morning, looking at the gospel. Paul brings out the gospel in verses 7 through 10 for us when he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, to say that more plainly, Paul is saying Christ has won our gifts by his death, resurrection, and ascension. We can have assurance in the power of our gifts because they are not of us. They are given to us by Christ in his ascension power after conquering death. Now, there's debate on what verse 9 means, and we won't get into that this morning, but likely it refers to his death in, in some way. The main point, though, what Paul is stressing here is that he didn't just descend. The main point is that he ascended. Right? He didn't just descend, he also ascended. He was victorious over death. He conquered it for us. See, in ancient times, if a king was in a city and an enemy was coming in to to try to invade and enslave everyone, the king would go out to fight that enemy. And if he won, if he delivered his people from oppression and captivity, he would return triumphantly. He would go back to his throne, he would ascend his throne, and he would sit on it in the midst of his people to let them know his presence was still there. And then he would give gifts. That is, he would take the spoils of his victory from defeating the enemy, and he would distribute them among his people to enrich them, to enrich his city. That is the reality this ascension language brings to mind when we read it here. In his victory over death, Jesus led captive captivity. That's literally what the language says there. It means he took captive the captor. He conquered the one who conquered us. He overthrew death. It says this in Colossians 2.25. It says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. He made a spectacle. He embarrassed them. Jesus descended. He descended as the eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent God and King of the universe, humiliatingly taking on the limited, frail, finite human form. He subjected himself to pain, to grief, to mocking, to beating, and ultimately death. But he did so in order to defeat death itself. And as a consequence, as he drags death and sin behind him in the humiliation of their defeat, he lavishes on us the spoils of his victory, dispersing his gifts of grace to us. 
These gifts are the gifts of the Spirit. Peter makes this connection in Acts at Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out. And he says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having ascended to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out forth this which you both see and hear. In his ascension, he gives us gifts. I want you to leave here this morning encouraged by this. That the Lord Jesus faced the humiliation of weakness and death in your place. And he did so not only to bring you the gift of salvation. He did that. But he also did it to lavish you with gifts of power. Gifts that bring life to people. Jesus descended so that when he ascended, he could offer you a new life, a life in which he could bless you with beautiful gifts that enrich you so that you can enrich others with them. This is the good news. Your gifts are not your own. They belong wholly to Christ who won them for you by his death and his victory over the kingdom of darkness that would try to keep us from using them. And they are lavished on us from the very throne room and presence of God with all of its power and ability and efficacy to build up his church. In his ascension, Christ enters the presence of God in resurrection victory on our behalf for us. He sits at the right hand of the Father, sending the Spirit to empower and embolden us. God has given us good gifts as well as a mission to use them. And the guarantee that they will accomplish the work he's given us is our ascended Lord. He sits at the right hand of the Father in the full presence of God as the first fruits of the physical resurrection, a guarantee that everything of that future glory that God promised to us will come to pass. Pray with me. God, we thank you and praise your name today um, in encouragement that you are the one who ascended on high. You not only took on your humiliation of of taking on flesh, of facing every sorrow and, and difficulty we could have faced so that you would be able to sympathize with us, even facing death in our place when we deserved it. Taking on the full wrath of God, that wasn't the end though, God. We thank you that your son rose again and that he not only rose, that he ascended to your right hand in power so that he might lavish us with the spoils of his victory. God, we thank you for that truth, the truth that gives us encouragement and assurance that we will be able to accomplish the work that you've given to us. And as we look forward to that future glory, to the future kingdom, that you promise us, the new heavens and the new earth. Father, would you encourage us to use the gifts you've given us? Would you empower us with the Spirit through those gifts to accomplish that goal for your glory? It's in your name we pray. Amen.